Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible, Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and we will be <clears throat> diving into the Word of God today as we do every Sunday. We are moving along in Ecclesiastes. We've been going verse by verse through Ecclesiastes for a little over a month now. We've gotten to chapter 3 now, and some of you will probably recognize this particular chapter from a song from the birds. And I was thinking that song in my head as I was reading this. But uh, this is actually um, part of the words to A Song from the Birds, a very popular secular rock song. And so this passage may be familiar to a lot of us. It's even been used by the birds. But on a more serious note, this passage is all poetry. Um, we've been reading a lot of free verse these last couple of sessions in Ecclesiastes. But now Solomon reverts back to making observations through the medium of poetry and that's a, that's an important transition but the text says reading out of the english standard version for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war in a time for peace, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. Hebrew poetry largely centers on the concept of wisdom, so much so that um, Hebrew poetry in the Bible is considered wisdom poetry. This is the center theme, is wisdom. And this is something we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes the last couple of sessions, with the wisdom of God and the pleasures of God, and how God has brought out his Redeemer according to his perfect wisdom. But Hebrew poetry doesn't usually rhyme. There's, there's a particular characteristic to Hebrew poetry, to Eastern poetry as a, as a whole, but Hebrew poetry specifically is it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't meet a lot of modern American um, assumptions about poetry. But it does utilize what's called parallelism. That is, it's a structure that is based on couplets, on complementary statements. 
This is a strong element in Hebrew poetry. Statements are made in twos, either as additional, comparative, or contrasting couplets. For example, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walketh not, according to... <clears throat> For example, Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Right? Each of those lines builds off of it. And then we get to line 4, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and it contrasts. And that is a pattern that runs through most Hebrew poetry is laid out that way. And so, this is something we bring into the way we approach this text, because Solomon, under the inspiration, the verbal plenary inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he makes this transition for a very specific purpose. And parallelism, others have defined as a characteristic of poetry in which lines are paired together in such a way that the second line presents a slightly different perspective than expressed in the first line. And if we look at this list, we see a time to be born, a time to die. There's all these opposites. And even when we've looked at the free verse in Ecclesiastes, we've seen this kind of pattern a little different, that there's been almost like this mirror effect between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And so it's still the same substance, it's just packaged differently. So why does Solomon shift to poetry? And I believe that Dr. Edward Curtis answers that question best. And he writes, Wisdom literature has a remarkable power to address the disconnect between confusion, between confession and life. And when people teach this material, they are often struck by how readily people re relate to Proverbs and the rest of this literature. It gets into a person's mind and provokes thought, and it provides a unique interface between the world of ancient Israel and today precisely because it deals with the experiences that are the common lot of people living in the world. People deal with inexplicable suffering and loss and often struggle as Job did. They wonder whether life has any meaning and whether anything they do really matters. They experience the delights and the challenges of relationships. They struggle with injustice and with government systems that often support oppression rather than seeking to eliminate it. While the circumstances in which these challenges are set change with time, place, and culture, the basic struggles remain essentially the same. Solomon is building off the understanding of how people respond to poetry. Poetic words have a unique ability to capture the heart and the mind of the listeners. What Solomon has to say here, he does so in poetic form, so as to capture our hearts with what he's saying in a way that only God-breathed poetry can. For 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we have to, when we read that, we often think New Testament. But it's important to note that when Paul wrote this, most of the New Testament had not yet been written. So there was not a New Testament canon yet. So when he says scripture, He's referring to the law, the prophets, and the writings. 
the law, the prophets, and the poetry. And so scripture, he means Old Testament, that the Old Testament, first and foremost, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And we can't separate out that the New Testament falls in that category because it's also inspired by God. It is equal in substance with the Old Testament. But in the immediate context that Paul said this, he's describing the Old Testament. And so, this passage, Ecclesiastes, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And with that, let us dive into the text. As I've studied this passage, I went and I dove into the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is actually the oldest translation we have. It actually predates a lot of the Hebrew Old Testaments we have, but the Septuagint is in Greek, and it was actually put together around 300 years before the life and ministry of Christ. But I looked at the Greek and I looked at the grammatical elements of it, and I would like to share some of what I found there, because I think it pertains quite directly to the application of this text. And so, with every aspect that Solomon lists here, we will give appropriate time to each and see how it points us to God. So starting with verse 1, for everything there is a season. <clears throat> so starting with verse 1, to all deeds there is a time and a season for all matters under heaven. Paul uses two words here. When they put it in Greek, it's two different words for time, which, which reflects the Hebrew. But we're talking about the passing of time, and we're talking season, or a definite moment in time. Simply put, Solomon is invoking the fullest philosophical understanding of time, both as something organic and active, and as something that is appointed and fixed. Simply put, Solomon states that there is a set time for all things. There is time for everything under heaven, which is another poetic way of saying in existence. Likewise, when he said in chapter 1, under the sun, all things under heaven. That is in existence on earth, in this, not earth as the planet, but earth as in this physical side of eternity. And he gives time to defining categories of said deeds under heaven. And the way that he does is interesting. He lists virtually all of these verbs, because these are all verbs. And he does so in what's called a gerund, which is a grammatical term that simply means it's a verb that is acting as a noun. But they're in the past tense and the active voice, which means that he's writing things as if he's doing them, but he's writing in the past tense that these are all from his personal experience and knowledge. So we move to verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Those words, born or bear and die, um, those are in the active past tense form. So we are talking about things that he's seen, things that he's experienced. And there is a time for birth. 
duh, we know this. There's a time for birth and there's a time for death. This is true to all people. We all live, we all die. But we can do both to the glory of God. Romans 14 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And this is part of a discourse in Romans where Paul is approaching theological differences on some Jewish practices concerning the feasts and fasting and dietary habits and things like that. But the bottom line of what he's saying is that it's not the food alone that's for the glory of God, but every aspect of our lives is directed to the glory of God, or ought to be. Hebrews 9 says, Just as it is appointed unto all men to die once, and then comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It goes on to say in chapter 10, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has made perfect that which was not by his own life and death. That there is a time to live and a time to die. And Christ lived and died. And he redeemed and secured for himself a people who otherwise would die in their sins and incur judgment. And he lived and died and rose again that we who are in Christ shall do the same. And we shall live as he lived and die as he died and rise again as he rose. Colossians 3 says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. These are two points that every person will experience. We will experience birth, and we will experience death. And we can experience both, either in Christ or out of Christ. And both of these are under the reign of God. Number two, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Interesting enough, Jesus actually made a parable, gave a story about plants. In Matthew chapter 13, he says, he put a parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds 
appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants told him, Then do you want us to gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat inside the barn along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He explains it a little bit later. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has, He who has ears, let him hear. So we are the, the plant here. And if you follow this trend through the Bible, agricultural activities are often used as metaphors for our relation to God. Likewise, Psalm 80 says, Thou hast cast a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs into the sea, and her branches unto the river. It's difficult to consider these categories that Solomon lays before us without acknowledging the spiritual relevance of each of them. These are all items that point us back to the activity and existence of God. Continuing down the list, a time to kill and a time to heal. This one's a little tricky because we don't like to think about the necessity of killing things. A time to kill and a time to heal or cure. Some have rendered it close to break or repair, putting the first half in harmony with the last. Since this line is not in the battle of context, Solomon is likely referring, using the reference to battle and killing, but speaking metaphorically. Because this is poetry, and so it, it may very well be a metaphor. There being a time to destroy and a time to rebuild. Israel frequently came under judgment for their sins and were led into foreign occupations, had their cities destroyed and ransacked. But God promised restoration. He brought them back and rebuilt their walls, re restored that broken relationship with his covenant people. As it says in Hosea 14, I will heal their apostasy and I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Matthew Henry once put that if we would get good by our troubles, we must notice the hand of God in them, which is a picture painted vividly by Jonah in chapter 2. I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas. 
and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. A couple of verses later, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed, for salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah unto the dry land. There are times where things are hard. There are times where things get cut down, where things are, are destroyed, when things are broken. But when God allows things to be broken, it's not because he's some kind of sadist in the clouds. God is a good God. Which is why we take comfort in phrases like Psalm 115 that says, he, it says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. That's only a comfort if the one that sitteth in the heavens is a good God. Psalm 100 tells us the Lord is good. The Lord is good. His steadfast love, his faithful love, endureth forever. And his faithfulness is to all generations. That the faithlessness of the Father in one generation does not negate the faithlessness of God to the next. And so there is a time to kill and there is a time to heal. There is a time to tear down and a time to build. That there is a time where God tears down things to build them up the way they should be. Where God knocks down our houses of sin and builds us back up in righteousness. Sometimes sanctification hurts, but sanctification is still good because the God who is initiating it, who is maintaining it, and who will see it through is good. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Marry that with verse 5, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain. Sometimes this judgment, this knocking down of our sinful houses, will lead us to sing dirges instead of sea shanties. Our joy will turn into gloom, and we will mourn our own sinfulness. As it says in Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like water. And righteousness like an everlasting stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings in the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikketh, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Psalm 30 says, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. To that end, my glory may sing praise to thee, 
and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to thee forever. There is, there's time for both. That when we are being recentered, sometimes it hurts. But the God who turns our joy into mourning also turns our mourning into, into dancing. He brings us back to a place to rejoice, but not to rejoice in a sinful, haughty, I've arrived, but to rejoice in the goodness of God. That's one of the key themes in the book of Psalms is the faithfulness of God. And that's a book of songs. These were written to be sung. Psalm 136, um, you have a line, and then you have the statement, His mercy endureth forever. Praise unto, give thanks to God, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. For like 36 verses it does that. It's around, because his mercy endureth forever. And we insert endureth, because that's the best way we can make it a proper sentence by modern grammar standards. But it literally says, his mercy forever. His hesed, his faithful love, forever. God is faithful. God is good. And he is worthy to be praised for that, even when it hurts. Verse 6. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to discard. Verse 7. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. In our relationship with God, we appreciate that he is a searching and seeking God. But it is most sobering to realize that there are times where God ceases, when God gives us up to our sins. We've heard it said that one of the scariest verses in the Bible says, Depart from me, I never knew you. But I would raise that an equally scary verse is, And the Lord gave up Saul. And the Lord left him, it says. There comes a point where God forsakes us in our sins. Not the people that are saved, not the people that have been stamped by the righteousness of Christ or imputation, but people who walk the walk, who did jacked up all the boxes, that read the books, that went to the conferences, that did this, did that, and none of it was in here. None of it was internal. That they put on a facade and they, they hid their sinfulness behind a disguise of Christendom. I've heard it said that villains who twirl their mustaches are easy to spot, but ones that Hide, disguise themselves behind good deeds are well camouflaged. But God is not fooled by us putting on a Christian facade. God is not mocked either by us. The Bible says that we are rebels, that we are, we're not victims of sin, we're volunteers. Romans 1 is an indictment against every person who has ever lived except for Jesus of Nazareth. And it says, For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in the things that have been made. So they are without apologia, without excuse, without defense. For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is our condition. We are not victims of sin. We are volunteers. We have willingly gone astray like sheep. And God takes notice. God is not mocked. God is not fooled. And God is aware of the games that we play. And there comes a point where people that receive the benefits of being influenced by Christianity but don't internalize any of it where that rug will come out from under their feet. Jeremiah 7 says, As for you, do not pray for these people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? It is not themselves to their own shame. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. That's what every single one of us deserves. But God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. And he forgives all that are counted as righteousness according to the personal work of Christ. The Christ is our representative. He represented me in the, before God. He stood in my place and took the weight of my sin so that I could be different. So that I could be made new. Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you.
there are times where God casts out sinners in judgment. But God seeks those who, whom he came to save. And he died to atone for their sins. He laid his life down for the sheep that went astray. But some will stay astray and, and be held accountable for their sinful rebellion. But praise be to God for the sheep that he saves. Verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is another one that's a little challenging for us because the Christian is called to love as made abundantly clear by scripture. John 14 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another paracleton, another helper, comforter, advocate, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. First John Chapter 5 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world, and this, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We can continue making a case for Christian love. But there are times for distaste or even hatred for that which is evil. The part of loving what is good is not loving that which is not. Romans 12.9 says, Let love be gem genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. These two are not in competition. We hate evil because we love what is true. Jonathan Edwards gives us a grave warning in regarding to our will. And he says, It is that motive which, as it stands in the mind, is the strongest that determines the will. So then the ideas of love and hate find their proper place in the act of God conforming our will to his, which is pleasing, good, and perfect. When the strongest motive in the mind is what God has called good, and the weakest motive in the mind is what God has called us to not love. That is what we call the Christian life, of being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in complementing this, Solomon says, a time of war and a time of peace. And the grammar changes here. War and peace are not verbs. They're nouns. He's not describing war experientially as much as he is, is describing the abstract noun version, the concept of war, the idea of war. What does war have to do with God's people? 
Exodus 15 says the Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. During Solomon's time, there had been times in their history where God had called them to arms against wicked nations as the arm of God's judgment. Joshua 6.15 says, On the seventh day they arose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Speaking of Jericho. And they went into Jericho and they killed every living thing, except Rahab and her family. But the prophets, a little bit later, would prophesy of peace. Isaiah 2 says, He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they train for war anymore. Do war and peace speak to us today? This side of the cross? Absolutely. For God is a God of peace, but he is also a victorious God. A God who conquers. <clears throat> Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Put that side by side with Hebrews 13 verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Christian God is not just war or just peace, which is one thing that separates him from every other idea of God out there. That separates him from Islam, that separates him from Buddhism and everything else. Aside from the fact that those are all fake, if we just compared them on their merits. Islam is not a peaceful religion. I've read the Quran. It is violent. And you have violence in the Bible. But you do not have books of the Bible commanding us to behead the non-believer. You have vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Matthew Henry put it this way, The Lord is a God of almighty power, and woe to those that strive with their maker, for he is a God of matchless perfection. He is glorious in holiness. His holiness is his glory. His holiness appears in the hatred of sin, 
and his wrath against obstinate sinners. It appears in the deliverance of Israel and his faithfulness to his own promise. He is faithful in praises. That which is matter of praise to the servants of God is very dreadful to his enemies. He is doing wonders, things out of the common course of nature, wondrous to those in whose pursuit they are wrought, who are so unworthy that they had no reason to expect them. There were wonders of power and wonders of grace, and in both God was to be humbly adored. When we have union with God through Jesus Christ, the scene changes. Hebrews 13 says, says don't. Hebrews 13 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the Greek, it literally says never with a quintuple negative. We can literally render it as, I will never, 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 never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, says Hebrews, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. All these categories that we've considered here lead us back to the God who created human life. And these things find their true and proper place and understanding. And we can, we can find other applications here. This is not the full landscape here. There, there are many different ways we can apply these truths here in pursuit of God. But these things find their true and proper place in the worship and the reckless abandon of the God who is. And in, in closing, consider these words from poet Isaac Watts. Tremble ye sinners and submit. Throw down your arms before his throne. Bend your heads low beneath his feet. Or his strong hand shall crush you down. And ye blessed saints that love him too, with reverence bow before his name. Thus all his heavenly servants do. God is a bright and burning flame. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's. 
the joy of the potter and the journey of the clay. That is something that I've written. That is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative Word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.